Hello, freaks, and welcome to Radical Research. This is episode 55. We welcome you, as always, very, very appreciative of all the listeners and all the freaks out there who uh, get into all this stuff with us. Before we get into tonight's topic, I really want to mention the passing of Matt Fisher, bassist for California's Mind Rot. Mind Rot haven't been around for a while. Uh, I haven't heard from Matt in a long time, but he passed a few days ago, apparently. Uh, I don't know how. I don't know why. Well, I know why, because life is short and this, this terrible stuff happens. But I, I just want to give a shout out to Matt posthumously because I just feel that uh, th- this was a loss that kind of touched me because I worked with Matt when I was at Relapse in the mid-90s. And uh, this was when Dawning, their first album and their greatest album, uh, was just about to come out and we put it out and uh, we put a lot into it. And Matt was one of the guys in Mind Rot really, really pushing that album, that band. He had a lot of belief and passion in what they were doing. I was lucky enough to see them live twice in LA and um, got to know all the guys and they were fantastic. And I know Matt th- went through some troubles post Mind Rot. And I just wanted to give a shout out to Matt, Matt's family, give condolences publicly. And uh, both Hunter and I are huge fans of Dawning. And that's an album that I think we'll cover eventually in, in some great depth on an episode because it deserves it, does it not? Indeed, it does. Very, uh, very singular record. It still, I don't, I don't know that there's any record that's exactly like that one uh, in my collection. Yeah, yeah. I remember when it came out, and and you know, like I said, everybody at Relapse was all behind it, and it it may not have done what we wanted it to do, or or believed that it could do. We thought more people would latch onto it, but I think it also raised a few question marks for some people, especially since Mind Rod had kind of come out of the grind crust death metal scene and then did a record like Dawning, which certainly has its toes in that world, but it kind of goes even further. It's a fantastic album. And um, we, we, you know, I remember we made these huge, they must have been like five foot, six foot posters, huge posters of, of uh, the Dawning cover with the logo. And it was just, they were monstrous. And I don't know whatever happened to mine, but um, boy, I, I sure wish I had it now. Uh, Probably one of the best sounding records of the, that period as well. Yeah, and I, I believe the guy, if, boy, if I'm going to, Jim Barnes? It's Jim Barnes. Wow. And he, uh, I think he worked with Deceased either before. Oh, no, he, no, after. He after. Did, oh, he did Fearless Undead Machines. Fearless Undead Machines. And, yep. and uh, part of that was the relapse connection and the fact that we all thought, wow, this guy, this guy knows his, his way around a studio, you know. Yeah. Um, and Deceased were needing, you know, an, um, an uptick in their in their production after blueprints for madness but we'll, we'll just keep we'll save that for another time so uh anyway thanks for listening to me on that one hunter hey um i got just to completely spin it in a more positive and fun light i found out something about fate's warning i've been finding out a lot about fate's warning recently <laughs> because i'm writing a book on them and um it's it's been just utterly fantastic as a fan to uh to you know have jim's ear and anytime like something gets into my head i just email him real quick and go hey and, and this is one of the things I emailed them the other day because I, I was listening to an album by them. And I'm not going to say which one. I'm not going to say, you know, live, video, studio, classic, not classic, whatever. I want to ask you as a Fates fan, if you know where the phrase Anal Nothrock is uttered within a Fates Warning release. I do not. Any guesses? Spectre Within? You're kind of close, kind of. Uh, I was listening to Awaken the Guardian live. Mm-hmm. And in between songs for both of those shows, they did little segues. And some of those segues had samples uh, of movies and, and things. 
And I was listening to it the other day, and before Fata Morgana, I hear Anal Nathrak. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I, for one, I've heard that before because I think the band Anal Nathrak hmm. uses it in an early recording. And um, I've never known what that meant. I did, I've never looked that up. I've never gone into it. I haven't either, actually. But I got really curious, and I'm like, well, what the hell is that? So, of course, I emailed Jim, and I say, Am I, is this what I'm hearing? Is this the utterance that I'm hearing? He said, yeah, indeed. And he sent me a link to where they got it from, which was the Excalibur movie from 1981. And, and we, we see it in that um, as Morgana is dying. It's, it's the, I think, the penultimate sort of scene in the, in the movie or part in the movie. Anyway, kind of interesting. And, uh, you know, I just like that that utterance is in a Fate's Warning album because um, I – you know, I only have ever related that to the band. <laughs> Very interesting. Yeah. Thought you might like that little. little bit, uh, yeah. Bit of I'm, I'll never think of Anal Nathrak quite the same way again. <laughs> <laughs> right. So uh, heard from anybody lately? Heard from any of our friends or listeners? Anything, anything going on out there, Hunter? Trying to think. Oh, you know what? I feel like we've been neglecting someone lately. Uh, hold on, Forrest Pitts. No, we've we've talked about Forrest, and in fact, I've I've talked to Forrest several times lately. Let's see who else? Um, hmm. Tom Haley. Could be, yeah, Tom Haley. Tom, Haley, that's yeah. right. That's right. No, 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 no. Ah, I got it. Our good buddy Jason Walton. Oh, Jason. Oh, we haven't ah, mentioned Jason in Jason. a while. Metal luminary, bassist extraordinaire for such great bands as Agalot, Corada, Sculptured, Snares of Sixes, F-Space. We love Jason. Jason is one of the greatest human beings ever. And it's an unspeakable sin that we have gone two episodes without uttering his name. Ah, uh, wow. Yeah, well, I, uh, we, we apologize, Jason, if, he, if he's feeling belittled in any way. Jason, we, uh, we appeal to your sense of charity and ask forgiveness. Is it possible that we can mention that he's going to have us on his I Hate Music podcast? Ah. There's a link. <laughs> There's a link. We, we can do another seven degrees of separation of, of American metal weirdos. <laughs> he, I, he, he, when he told me that I needed to mention him on the podcast. I said, well, it kind of went, it was like, you know, why haven't you mentioned me? Which was, you know, a, 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 a subtle nudge. And yeah. I said, we're, we're doing hammers. I was like, and, um, you know, it should be pretty easy to get from hammers to Aesop to you. So, you well, know, it would probably come up one way or the other. But Vol, Vol is the link right there. Yes. Wasn't Aesop. Well, and, and, and Karada. Oh, there you well, well, exactly. So, so, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, so, yeah, from, so, Cobbett and, yeah, Cobbett and Vol to, yeah, Karada and, <laughs> and well, and Agalog. Aesop was on the last two uh, Agalog records. There's a time that I thought this fucking podcast of ours was going to turn into a food podcast uh, because of you, and then, and, and your meddling and, and, your, and your radish-loving sort of ways. And, but now I'm starting to think you're going to turn it into like a degrees of separation podcast. That's all. That's all it's going to be. And, and listeners right now are just going, no, no, no. I, I, we got way better feedback about the separation than any of my like food fetishism. So <laughs> I, I, I think that's definitely the angle to work, at least for me. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, let's uh, talk about hammers of misfortune. Shall we? <laughs> 
That was The Waif with Sunken Eyes by, well, they weren't called Hammers of Misfortune then. They uh, recorded that as Unholy Cadaver. <laughs> this band was formed in the mid-90s, just before, I guess I'll say, the bearded metal hipsters took over that town. Hammers of Misfortune, if you haven't already guessed, is the band under the microscope tonight. And that was Unholy Cadaver and uh, a, a track from their demo. And a lot of demo material from, I guess, what, the 97, 98 period? I think it's 98, yeah. 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 And um, came out in 98. You know, the, the moniker was actually quite appropriate for this and I think even the first Hammers album. But, that, you know, they also did well to change it because by the second album, the name would have been a complete misrepresentation. And who were they? I think we got to talk about the core of Hammers. I don't know that we're going to name every person that came and went, you know, to and from Hammers. That might be a little slippery. Yeah, and and two, like this beginning core lasts for a while. So long, long yeah. enough, long enough to I think really establish the foundation of what this band is about, and kind of where you know, even on the sixth and and so far final album, you can hear all the traces from the first two, uh, which were recorded by this this original lineup. And that is John Cobbett. John Cobbett is the founder, writer, guitarist, and constant member of Hammer's Misfortune. On second guitar, we have Mike Scalzi, who moonlighted with Cobbett here. And of course, I think he's probably best known for leading the Lord Weird Slaufeg, who Cobbett himself returned the favor kind of. He moonlighted with Slaufeg for a time. We haven't talked a ton about Slaufeg Hunter over our 20-year friendship and having uncanny parallels with our music tastes. Are, are you a fan? Like, where, where, are you, where are you at with Slaufeg? Yeah, no, I, I own a few, um, few Slaufeg records. Traveler's probably my favorite. I actually knew about Slaufeg before I knew about uh, Hammers. Yeah, I think most um, people and I, did. Yeah, yeah and I knew, uh, I knew Scalzi already. Because so. I literally remember the exact place, the exact moment, uh, where I was when you first told me about Hammers and Misfortune. In 2002, I'd moved back to Statesboro between college and grad school, and um, you and I were talking one night, and I had literally, I don't remember where I ordered it from, but I had literally just ordered a copy of the While Heaven Wept Drowning Year 7-inch. Mm. And um, you, and I were you and I were talking, um, I think that, Tom Phillips had just come to visit you and you and I were talking about Grobschnitt and anyone's daughter and I know Vallis and maybe Pulsar. <laughs> that sounds other like, stuff. that sounds like Tom Phillips's visit to my house. Yes. Yeah. I'd probably <laughs> Tom Phillips visit. Yeah. Right. And um, anyway, you, um, I think you'd gotten an advance of the August engine or something. And I remember you t saying the name hammers and misfortune and I, it's still such an evocative name to me. I, I, mm. it, I, I love that. I love the name to death. Mm -hmm. I think it fits them to a T. And, you know, we live in a, an age largely bereft of good band names. And I think it's <laughs> a, a great one. And, and I remember, I, I remember, it's like, because I couldn't quite fit, like, it, as good as the name is, and as suggestive it is, as it is, it doesn't tell you exactly what the band sounds like, which I also love. Oh, and yeah. I really, I was trying to, I was like, is, is it a black metal band? Or, you know, is, is it a doom band? And I remember you just saying, it's just great, epic, heavy metal. Yeah. Well, and, speak, and, and speaking of, and it is, right? I mean, yeah, that's, that, that's what, that's what we're looking at. absolutely is. Uh, that's, I get, you know, if we, if we whittle it down, and this is a very hard band to just describe to someone um, who has no idea, but I guess, I guess we could say epic heavy metal. I, and, and this is where we need to go, go back to Scalzi before we talk about the other two and move on. 
Scalzi to me always brought a kind of Mark Shelton-esque kind of vocal to Hammers, you know, from uh, Manila Road. Totally. Or, uh, yeah, Tim Baker. Tim Baker. You know, there's that, that, that subset of, like, weird cult American metal, and Scalzi, like, slides right in there. Broke, like, his, yeah, broke his helm. Yeah, broke his helm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and San Francisco band right there. But, but yep. yeah, Scalzi always had carried that tradition, and I and I like that this band sort of are partially built on that sort of thing, right? Because mm -hmm. they're not dime a dozen, and I also think it's hard to do well. And Scalzi always had that just eccentric, love it or hate it kind of voice. Yep. Um, so there, there you go. Uh, let's move on. the The drummer was Chewy Marzolo, great drummer, really love. Love Chewy, completely and, underrated. And I think I had heard at one point, and it may be Cobbett as well, I don't remember, but like he at least, uh, maybe Cobbett, what, were in a Thin Lizzy tribute band or something. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's maybe how they you know, made a little money at gigs or whatever back in the day. I hope that's good information still. I just remember that from like 15 years ago. But, <laughs> but when, when, I, when I learned that, and, and now that I've been listening to Thin Lizzy more and more as I get older, I'm like, yeah, that makes a ton of sense because Thin Lizzy's drummer was incredible. And... Chewy is the kind of guy that could probably tackle that stuff because that yep. that's that's not material that any drummer can just pop into and play. I, I think Thin Lizzy had uh, just a, not only a fantastic drummer in Brian Downey. So um, yeah, great drummer Chewy Marzola. He stays for a while. And on bass, Janice Tanaka. Now this is interesting, and I and you know I I, I almost want feel like we're going to do discredit to her by bringing this up, but I also feel like we have to. Uh, she's a great bassist in her own right, great personality in Hammers and Unholy Cadaver before she left. But she went on to play with the huge pop star Pink. We, we, have to, we have to mention that. It's very interesting. And that also makes two episodes in a row now where we can link <laughs> one of our favorite metal bands to some huge pop star. <laughs> right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We, we've covered in a matter of a week or so Mariah Carey and Pink. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, oh, well. Next stop, Lady Gaga. She was, um, yeah, I mean, and, and Janice uh, spread out. I mean, she was in uh, L7, mm -hmm. um, played in Fireball Ministry for a while. Yep. yep. Um, so, yeah, yeah, she's, she's active. So here we are in San Francisco. Uh, the Unholy Cadaver demo has come out. These guys and gal changed their name to Hammers. In a span of about eight months, in late 99 and early 2000, they record their debut album and on an eight-track machine, no less. Mm-hmm. And if that's indeed true, they really knew what they were doing because it sounds really damn legit for an 8-track. Uh, we also have to mention it was mixed and mastered by Justin Weiss at Tracksworks. And this is a guy we have to note in the Hammer story. He's worked on every single Hammer's album. Uh, and Justin Weiss has also worked with tons of mentionable acts, bands related to Hammer's like Ludacris, Vol, Slaufeg, uh, also Agalock, Witch Mountain, Ulysses Siren, and Broke His Hound. Mm. Yeah, so it, yep. it, basically if you're West Coast and you're a badass metal band, you basically want a quality mastering guy or a great mixer <laughs> or engineer. <laughs> Apparently Justin Weiss like, automatically appears. Um, <laughs> so The Bastard, this was the debut album. I missed this one when it initially came out. I didn't, I get, into this, I didn't get into this band until the second album. I think I'd heard the name, but beyond that, just wasn't as tuned in. It's a three-part album. It's a 14-song album. It's, you know, it's 45 minutes or something. It draws from black metal, but the music itself and all its potential kind of does so without the hokey artifice, which I think a lot of bands sort of stumble upon when, when they draw from black metal and they're living in, you know, downtown San Francisco. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. What are your thoughts on Bastard? When did this one come on your radar? And what do you think of it now? 
came on my radar like you after August Engine. I think I heard it for the first time in 04. I like it more and more as I get older. One of the reasons I like it so much is because it's sort of because of its flaws. Um, it's a very ambitious record compared to like the focus of August Engine. I mean, it's kind of all over the place. Oh, yeah. Because you, you do get, you know, the heavy metal, you get some of the doom, but it's it's certainly the most, you know, black metal of all the the, the hammers kind of stuff. But it's it's eclectic. It's got, you know, the it's the last time that we hear the grim vocals. And that I think they work sometime. It's I mean it's kind of an unwieldy record, but I I kind of love it now. Yeah. No, and, I, and, and, I, yeah. So and, and going back um and in doing research and, and re listening to the entire catalog really only kind of confirmed that for me. Gotcha. Okay. That's a, that's a cool perspective. I have a similar one. I didn't get into it either at the time. I remember getting into the second album, August engine and a lot of people, uh, Jim Raggi being one of them, but a handful of others uh, were all crazy for the bastard still. And I was getting into August engine thinking it was a masterpiece. I still do to this day. And um, I went back to the bastard and I've gone back to the bastard over the years and I'm not hearing I guess maybe what some of its devotees are hearing. Uh, I, I like it a lot, especially in the context of being a, a big fan of this band, but I'm just not, I, I guess it just created an impact when it came and I can see why it's, it's, a, it's a pretty ambitious debut album, right? Um, oh, absolutely. Different than anything else out there at the time or kind of ever, you, you don't get stuff like this very often, but, but let's stop talking. Let's listen to a track. Great, great song title. Uh, we love this. You should have slain me.
that was track from Hammers of Misfortune's debut record, The Bastard, called You Should Have Slain Me. I think it's the most obvious thing is that it's in the greatest of all time signature, 6 8. <laughs> um, which is designed to make the head bang. Um, but already there, there's a certain elegance to the material. Mm. Um, I mean, it's epic. It, it, you know, it points to Europe, but it's also unmistakably American. I mean, I, you know, I think they were already well on the way to establishing that signature hammers of misfortune sound. And, and, and it's a little unfair and reductive of me to say signature sound because hammers of misfortune is a, an incredibly capable band and capable of working in a lot of different areas, but there are certain devices. There's a certain guitar sound, um, a certain approach to harmony and melody that is just characteristic. And I, and I think you can hear it all over that track. Yeah. I was going to say, I, I think the harmony and melody in the guitar area is one of the signifiers for this band throughout their career. Uh, and also one of the things that makes them European, it just, you know, it sounds like it's coming from that metal mindset. Germany comes to mind, certainly something Dutch. I don't know. Just that just this handle on kind of wielding aggression and melody it, with this kind of equal balance Right. Uh, that I think some people like to call classy or whatever, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. But there's just a, there's a heavy undertow, but then there's this melody and flight vibe <laughs> to what they're doing. You know, a lot, and a lot of '70s stuff. We do hear Thin Lizzy. We do hear some Wishbone Ash in in the guitar work. I think oh, yeah. as well as well as some of the metal classics from the '80s. So. I've always heard, and you know, we'll get to this on 17th Street because I think this is where this influence reasons head the most. But I, I hear like the first two Ozzy albums all, all over Hammers oh, yeah. of Fortune. I think there's a very similar approach to metal uh, and respect for metal coming from Hammers the way it is from those early Ozzy records. What makes it epic? You know, we talk about epic. Well, I think it's just, you know, that the, 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 the layers that we find, like we can delve into the, the sort of heavy handed aggression. We can delve into the melody. We hear different voices. We hear three different, you know, vocal styles on the bastard, uh, maybe, maybe four. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can probably even split hairs and get a fifth. They're just giving you a lot to digest. And I think what makes it epic is it's not a mess. You know, they're, they're able to direct this and focus it in a way that's just so satisfying. Right. Um, so even if the bastard isn't our favorite hammers, like we can listen to it and go, yeah, this is why I love this band. Um, sure. And to that point, we're going to listen to a bit from the final track, Sacrifice, the end. Uh, this is some pretty special stuff.
So I think also uh, of all the ingredients we mentioned, we didn't mention progressive rock, which I think will come to light even further uh, as we as we move on here. Uh, but you can already hear it there in, in the terms of the way they're like stacking things and kind of expanding on some themes that they introduced earlier and some kind of softer, more atmospheric breakdowns. Um, mm-hmm. We we definitely do hear that in this band as well. So epic, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Capital uh, E. Let's move on to the August engine. Hunter and I tend to agree a lot. We don't always agree. We just tend to come together for this podcast, which is why this podcast probably has about a thousand episodes in it because we do agree a lot. One of the things I think you and I agree on, Hammers and Misfortune has two masterpieces. One of them is 17th Street uh-huh. and the other one is the August engine. We agree. Ding, 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 ding. Um, so there, there you go. That's, that's where we stand on this album. Now, this was recorded by the exact same lineup as recorded The Bastard. But the band was moving forward really quickly because when I saw them on this tour, it was the first of two times I ever saw them. Uh, they played in Richmond, Virginia. And they were playing with a new lineup. It had bassist, vocalist Jamie Myers mm-hmm. replacing Janice, keyboardist Sigrid Shi or Sigrid Shy. I hope I'm saying her name right. She's married or a partner with John, and I, and I really hope I get that right. Uh, any guesses on her name pronunciation? No, no, no. In fact, when we uh, when I was preparing for this earlier, I was making some notes, and I had sort of resigned myself just to refer to her as Sigrid, and then hoping that you would know how to pronounce her last name. It's um, Sheer Shot. Yeah. Well. Either way. I, you know. So. Anyway, we as always we apologize for any butchery. <laughs> right. Right. So, and at that time, they played a lot more stuff from the Bastard than August Engine, which I found kind of curious. But in the booklet of August Engine, they list this new lineup. So, um, by the time it had gotten out there, and that's a whole other story in and of itself. Uh, but by the time it had gotten out there, they had changed the lineup. Yeah, I saw them on that tour as well. Oh, I and didn't know that. I yes, that. they they played Savannah. Ah. Um, to a pitifully small crowd, yeah. they were amazing. Yeah. Like they seem completely undaunted by how few people were there and they put on one hell of a show. Were they um, also playing um, lots of stuff from the bastard and less yeah. from August. Yeah. There were songs on yeah. August engine. I was like, Oh, but this guy's got to come next and no, it never yeah. came. Yeah. Uh, interesting. But um, yeah, respect. I mean, it was, it was a great show nonetheless. Yeah. Um, so this, this is an interesting story with this, with this uh, record. It, it was originally shopped to labels as a longer album. They wanted to expand beyond the local label, Tumult, Tumult, who uh, put out uh, The Bastard. And um, weirdly, I, I think really fucking weirdly, getting a quality label for this album was very difficult for them. I don't know if it was the time that it came out or you know, early 2000s or what, but um, I know that they approached all the kind of main labels you'd think about for metal back then. I know Century Media didn't bite because I was with Century Media then. I didn't have any kind of signing power with Century Media. That wasn't my position. But if I would have, I certainly would have gone for it or made an offer. But I remember talking to people at The End Records and Sensory, Laser's Edge, Ken Golden, who were really intrigued and really liked the album. For for some reason, they didn't bite. And um, it was really too bad. Eventually, the album got pared down to 44 minutes, less of that longer album that I think Cobbett was going for, that kind of the wall double thing. And it's, as it is, it's pretty fucking great. And Cruz del Sur, uh, who became a really good label, took it on when they were quite young. So I think at the time, you know, maybe it wasn't the big get. But uh, I, think, I think over time, Cruz del Sur has become 
reputable and and uh it, it, you know they existed on that label for two two albums i want i want to also mention that i recently got back in touch with john cobbett and he had this to say about the longer unreleased version of august engine um and he told me this was kind of the official word so i'll read it to you uh, he said simply the album was in danger of collapsing under its own weight so I don't, I don't know if he means by that that labels just weren't willing to go with a, a lengthy possible double album type thing or, or what. At some point, the original version got out there. And that's all I really want to say about it, other than John told me that it was unreleased for a reason. And one likes to choose how one's music gets put out there. And I really have to completely stand with him on that. There were a couple cool things left off because I have a CDR of that original version. I'm, not, I'm never going to post it or trade it, but um, it's got some good stuff. And uh, we're going to deal with August Engine as it exists. And as it exists, we still think it's a masterpiece. So <laughs> <laughs> um, what do you say we uh, check out an early part of the album? We're going to do Rainfall and A Room and a Riddle together. This is the way they appear on the album. We'll do snippets from both. <laughs> Oh, 
It's just such a gorgeous piece. You mentioned um, that very, very lyrical piano playing from Sigrid. And yep. yeah, it's... Oh, wait, sorry. Uh, no, no. It wouldn't have been Sigrid because she wasn't on this. Oh, shit. Yeah. Uh, no, no. Who played? Hold on, hold on. Yeah, it is Sigrid. When she she guessed it on it, didn't she? Oh, hold on. Let me, let me look. I have it right here. Hold on. Yeah. According to the Oracle... Sigrid does play organ, piano, and does some backing vocals on the album. Yeah, because I'm looking at the original booklet, and it doesn't really give any credit to anybody playing piano in terms of this album was performed by. There's no mm. piano there. Then, above that, as I mentioned earlier, it, it mentions the new lineup, and, and Sigrid is, among other things, um, credited with piano. So we'll, we'll just uh, we'll give it to her. But yeah, she does this just very simple piano line that I find so effective and emotional I, I just it's it's just a, the way the fingers fall on the keys man it just really and it, you know the way it's written it's it's wonderful um you're right though yeah the 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 touch that she gives the piano yeah it's, um, a, great, it's it, a great moment and like you said what a way to start start the album right mm -hmm. but then just the sheer forcefulness and the focus of um room and a riddle you just hear a band who is tightening things up compositionally honing their performances not to say i mean even as early as unholy cadaver all those guys were very very self-possessed players mm -hmm. um, but I, I think that you can hear how inspired they are by the elevated writing on the august engine i think so that yeah i think that sort of urges on these tremendous performances that we hear that's a great word for it the the elevated because everything about this album is elevated because because to me we don't get anything like room in a riddle on bastard as you can take the highest points from that album and you just don't get a song like that or you mm -hmm. don't get a song like insect or you don't get a song like uh the trial is it the trial in the grave mm -hmm. um oh or uh, yeah um uh uh, doom parade doom parade man yeah that's that's a classic and you know we're going to hear more of this greatness in august engine part two which we're going to play next but yeah this this is the this is where uh i think cobbett finds uh his mastery uh, i don't want to kiss his ass too much but i have to say I mean, john yeah good, good god like you you were fucking dialed in at this point <laughs> i mean really you know yeah. i mean he didn't pay us that much <laughs> right no yeah just yeah. a few hundred you know which is right which is yeah. really chump change and radical research there's a yeah the, look there there is a <laughs> there there's a a, a a list of accepted um thresholds for the receipt of payment for praise in the podcasting world and and you have it from the horse's mouth that jeff and i will never exceed that threshold yeah let's listen to the august engine part two utterly fantastic
So yeah, uh, we could probably have done an episode on this album alone. We love it. There's so many nooks and crannies. And, I, and this is one of those episodes and one of those bands where I feel like we're playing snippets of songs and um, you're just not ever going to get the complete round experience uh, that you need. So I'm sure a lot of you, in fact, I, we know a lot of you, thankfully, are album listeners and value the experience. So I know you'll go out and you'll go to their Bandcamp site because this is where you can buy all the official versions of everything you hear in this episode. And I know that the money goes right to the band, which is fantastic. So we're going to post that link on our show notes, but uh, it is the Hammers of Misfortune Bandcamp page. I don't know how the CD looks these days. There's, a, there's that sort of alternate cover listed on their Bandcamp page right now for it. I have the one with the claw on CD and then I have that original vinyl version with a different um, cover, but on the insides of the CD version, and I believe the cover too, uh, I believe it's John Cobbett that does all the drawings as well. So another one of these guys that got way too much talent and left the rest of us, you know, with, uh, with a little less. Um, but uh, I, I love his stuff. I love his, his, the drawing in the, in the booklet of this album. Um, it does remind me of a way from Voivod, a ways kind of pencil drawings or pen drawings, and that's only a, a compliment, but it's, it's got its own great style as well. So we applaud Cobbett for his artistry in that area as well. Yes. So I, I'd like to mention a little, we're, we're going to get into a little bit more of San Francisco, but we're going to talk about what, what a band that Jeff and I both love, the champs, the fucking champs, mm. it, Tim Green, who played guitar opposite Josh Smith in the champs, mm-hmm. uh, also is a rather prolific uh, engineer, uh, mixer, producer, and in fact had a hand in recording this very album. So we would like to thank him for not only the brilliant music that he's helped make, but also that. But also he recorded another album that Jeff and I absolutely love, Melvin's The Maggot. Mm. Um, Worked. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm. Love me some maggot. Boy, that's boy, that's some good time rock right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's some tasty um, rancid meat worm right there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but he worked with um, Wolves in the Throne Room, mm. Weakling, The Galt. Okay, but hold on. I don't mean to giant giant squid. Giant squid, awesome band. Um, yep. I don't mean to cut you off, but like the third, the three bands you mentioned: Wolves in the Throne Room, The Galt, and uh, what was the other one? Um, oh, weakling. Weakling. Well, was it weakling? Those yeah. all. Those also have hammers. Uh, they're in the yes. hammers family tree anyway. Yep. Because Jamie Myers went to the uh, Galt, uh, the Galt, and Wolves in the Throne Room yep. at some point. Interesting stuff. And just as an aside, before we leave August Engine, just wanted to mention that somehow, some way, uh, they know Kirk Hammett or they thanked him on August Engine. I wonder what that's all about. But Kirk was, of course, you know, always around in the San Francisco scene, so that's pretty cool. And Kirk uh, was always a. Uh, uh, pretty active listener you know he wasn't one of those guys that kind of got you know famous and stayed like he was i mean even you know after their wild success with the black album he was you know given uh credit to godflesh 
Yes. You know? Yeah. No, I, I think he, yeah, he, he, and I think all those guys did to a degree. I know Jason did, but um, mm-hmm. I can't, I can't, certainly can't speak for James and Lars, but I know that Kirk, you know, like, Jay, like Jason remained a fan. You know, he kept kind of uh, a bit of humility about him and despite everything going on with that band. But yeah, you would see him sort of either mingling or just being a part of some trajectory, uh, you know, in some era of some, some band's life. And I think that's great. Uh, you mentioned Godflesh. I, I, I'm curious to know how you know the Hammers thing comes into his his life, but um, really interesting stuff. So, you know, in San Francisco metal, you know, it, it runs deep. There's, there's a great history there, and this is uh, certainly one of our favorites. Now, Hammers of Misfortune went on to their third album, and the lineup listed in August Engine is what the band was now, uh, with Jamie and Sigrid. Uh, that was the lineup that took flight in the recording studio finally for the Locust Years. We're going to check out a song that, you know, there's a lot of hyperbole tonight already, but I'm going to just going to layer it on even thicker. This is a top tiers hammer song. This is to me, not only that, but a top American heavy metal song in genre history. No shit. Let's talk about it when we get back. This is Trout Out the Dead. <laughs> easily the best song on this album yeah um, an album that i love but nonetheless I, I there's nothing on this album that reaches these meteoric heights and interestingly because you and i and i don't know if you had this experience when you saw them live 
uh, but you and I were sort of focused on the fact that they were playing more material from the bastard than they were from the album that they were promoting. Mm-hmm. They actually played this song, um, an early version of this song when I saw them. Oh, see now um, I wouldn't, I mean, how did, I mean, how did you know that? Cause I wouldn't have recognized it other than knowing. Oh, that. I did. I, it blew me. I, I, it just stuck with me. Wow. Um, okay. And I remember when, um, the locust years came out two years later that, um, I, I remember listening to it the first time. I was like, Oh, they played this. That's the song. Okay. This, yeah. Huh. Okay. That's, that's, that's interesting to know because I think it's one of the few on locust years that I could really see fitting on August engine somehow. I don't, I don't know why I think that, but I always have thought that I don't know if they played it when I saw him in Richmond, I suppose maybe, but um, I'll have to ask my buddy, Josh Greer, your, your friend and mine. Yes. Um, We haven't mentioned Josh much on this podcast, but he's a, he's a great friend and um, you and I jammed with him. Um, God, when was it? Um, uh, oh, se- uh, February of 07. 07, okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, we did some Voivod songs. We did some Manila Road. We did some Autopsy. We did some... Uh, Man of War. Black Sabbath uh, from Never Say Die album. We did what yep. uh, What we do, Johnny Blade? Yeah. Okay, yep. What Man, Man of War. War did, what Man of War did we do? Um, I want to say Fast Taker, but maybe not that. It, was, no, no, it, uh, wasn't, it wasn't Fast Taker. Um, it was... From I think it was Hound. something about battle. Yeah, okay, you're right. <laughs> uh, hold on, hold on. Death tone. Yep. It was, yep. That was it. Shout out to Josh Greer. I went to the Richmond show uh, with him, the Hammers Misfortune show. So that's that's why I bring him up. Hope he's listening. I will always hold a slight grudge against you and Josh Greer because you pillaged um, that collection at Manifest in Charlotte, the week <sighs> where I was able to go. Oh, right. I still like, made out. I, I got um, two of the three afflicted seven inches. I got an abhorrent seven inch, um, a house of usher. Yes. Josh, Josh being younger, he, um, he didn't have like, say stuff like omens battle cry, you know, cause mm. he didn't grow up then. So he always liked it. He probably had it on CD, but he, he was finding like mint copies of the original gatefold for like five bucks, you know, nice, <laughs> like I mean, nice. before vinyl prices spiked. And yeah, that was, that was a good time. Uh, yeah, Josh is a great listener and a great guy. Um, yeah, great. Dude, I, I, great I wish dude. I saw him more often. Great guitarist. He could handle some. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, dude. He's a killer guitarist. Yeah. So anyway, we'll get to uh, Chastity Rides. This is another highlight from the Locust Years. A lot of highlights on this album. <laughs> Tiny eyes, like diamonds you climb 
I love so much about Cobbett is his uncanny ability to surprise as a songwriter. Cobbett will play a riff and I will anticipate its trajectory and then it'll go somewhere that I never would have imagined. Mm. And, you know, I'm a, I've been listening to music for a long time and it's pretty tough to surprise me at this point, jaded old bastard that I am. <laughs> um, and, and, and even though I know these songs and I know these albums so well, sometimes I'm, it, it still surprises me. And one thing that I think distinguishes the Locust Years from the two albums that preceded and also the Unholy Cadaver demo um, is the preponderance of vocals. The Bastard and August Engine and Unholy Cadaver have very, very long stretches of instrumental passages. And I mean, in fact, some of that music is so visual that it hardly even needs vocals. I think about bands like the chasm and summoning who also um, tend to rely on vocals less than um, would be expected because of the, um, you know, the very, uh, I'm trying to think of another one. No, the, the chasm's visual, a really good but, call. They had an album yeah. a few years ago that was like, what, 15 minutes in the middle of like just no vocals and it wasn't novelty. It was just how they do things. Right. Right. And uh, hammers and misfortunes always had the luxury of having great vocalists but I think their music is such that um, it's not relying on it. The fact that they have great vocalists is just one of the other things that make them um, such an exceptional band. Mm -hmm. um, but, but yeah, I think we hear a lot more um, vocal writing on the Locust Years than we do on the, the previous albums. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, that's a really good point. Incidentally, it's the last one with Scalzi. He exits after this, which mm -hmm. is kind of sad uh, and at first, when I got the next album, I was a little disappointed that it just wasn't Scalzi. I think I was a little too hung up on him. Once I sat with this double album, and we're going to get into this now, uh, and I'm going to say, you know, five, seven years later, um, I started to really get into it and like it. Now, I, I think that amongst my crew, my people who listen feverishly and keep up on things, um, this album was not very well received. What are your thoughts on it now versus then? And uh, just your thoughts in general on Fields and Church of Broken Glass. When it came out, I was very cold to it. I, I probably had the same hang up that you did. Um, but, but also I was um, less captivated by the songwriting um, than I had been with the albums before it. I really, you know, I, after I got them, they sat around for a long time. I got 17th Street, which we'll discuss after this, which just absolutely blew me away. It was probably my favorite album of 2011. Mm. Still a, one of my absolute favorite albums of this decade. And about three years after 17th Street um, came out, I, um, I found myself um, with <laughs> some free time. And, uh, and um, the opportunity to go back and listen to some albums that I had neglected for a while. This is like 2014. Mm -hmm. And I went back to Fields and, and Church of Broken Glass, and they sounded fresher than they had ever sounded. Yeah. Um, and go, and I, I've, I've really, really liked them ever since. And then going back, you know, for the purposes of our research here, they still sounded great to me. Cool, cool. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they're intriguing, and it, and it was it was weird the way they put them out, and I'm not sure 
it's an ideal way to put out an album, but this is, this was Cobbett's way. This was Cobbett's vision. And we just have to, you know, uh, take it as it is. I've always liked fields more than church of broken glass for whatever reason. It's kind of like, um, uh, bath and the, and the body map and leaving the body map. You know, I've always liked yeah, leaving the yeah. body map a little more than bath. I right. Right. You, yeah. you pick your favorite. Right. Um, this came out on profound lore. This was a new label for hammers. And, uh, this is what 2008, uh, profound lore being a very reputable label. Chris there does a great job with what he does. So he picked a good band to, to do this with this double album concept thing. It brought a significant lineup change as well. So there's a lot of change in hammers at this point. Jamie Myers and Scalzi were gone. Another vocalist was brought in by the name of Patrick Goodwin. Uh, there was Ron Nichols on bass, a girl by the name of Jesse Quattro did some vocals. Um, here's the thing about hammers and sort of the replacement for Scalzi. I, and, I, and I don't want to demean these people uh, that came after Scalzi, but they are post Scalzi. Let's face it. They have voices similar to Scalzi, right? <laughs> I remember getting 17th street and I was like, dude, Scalzi's back in the band. I know, yeah. Well, yeah. That, yeah, that guy, that guy even more so than, than uh, Patrick for sure. But, right. but, um, <laughs> In Hammers, I think they established a certain aesthetic by this time, right? Yeah. And I think Cobbett did a great job of finding guys with similar character. So here we are. We have Fields, uh, a seven-song album, and Church of Broken Glass, a five-song album. It's not quite as monolithic sounding as it sounds because they're, they're on the shorter side, these albums. Um, we're going to listen to Mortarcade from Fields, my favorite song uh, probably of the, of the entire thing. And uh, one called The Gulls from Church of Broken Glass, which is pretty damn awesome as well. And we'll, uh, we'll, we'll listen to these two in a row and, and discuss when we get back.
So there you go. That's uh, a couple cuts from the Fields Church of Broken Glass double album excursion. I want to mention that they did a song called Church of Broken Glass. It, it serves as a title track. Uh, we're, we're not going to listen to that. But I want to note that the song was one of the ones that was dropped for the final official version of August Engine. There's an earlier version of that with Scalzi on vocals. I like that they revived that. Kind of creates a little link to the Scalzi era. And, and there you go. That's, that's, uh, that's that wonderful little era that gets us into the next. What's, what say you, Gin? i tell you what I say. Um, <laughs> This is, re- you know, we talked about their flirtations with prog rock in the past. To me, this is where they move beyond flirtation and into the dating phase. For sure. Um, yeah, like the, the, the prog rock uh, becomes less of a suggestion and more of just a, you know, a, an outright indulgence. In the last song we played, there was a unison guitar and organ uh, lick that reminded me a lot of the American progressive rock cathedral um, who in 1978 uh, released an album called stained glass stories. Yeah. So we, we've got cathedral, we got glass, we got a band that's about to break the glass <laughs> going into the cathedral. It's just, it, it's, we're full circle here, <laughs> man. That's amazing. I like that. You know, it's funny <laughs> you bring up that, that American band called cathedral because they do, I'm not sure John Cobbett knows about them, but um, I wouldn't be surprised if he does. There's there's a there's a vibe there that's that's quite similar to the Stained Glass Stories album. Hmm, I like that man. That's really good. I, I can hear it now that you mention it. Yeah, it, it's that it's that wonderful. I, I think there's a Hammond going on there. There is. There's yeah. A, there's a Hammond. Yeah. yeah. So this band is from San Francisco. I think the next album was a bit of i'm not gonna say an urban album but it had some level of i don't know kind of a knowing their place in the world geographic sort of vibe do you, do you want to speak on that a little bit we've talked about that some yeah um, i don't I'd like to explore you know, it more I, I don't know that i would argue with the claim um that this is an urban album i i mean just on the cover you know you have the silhouettes of the six band members and and the backdrop of San Francisco and, and I think San Francisco and the identity of the city has has played an important role in this band and I think it's played an important role I don't know it, it, it seems like with San Francisco bands they're very proud of being from San Francisco mm. um, and I mean you you get nods to that on um, on this album with you know, the title track, The Day the City Died. 317, I suspect, is a street address or an apartment number. Mm. But, but two... Now, also, it, sorry, not to, not to interrupt you, but the inside packaging as well. Also, sure. kind of scenes from, you know, the city. There's, there, you know, it's artfully done, of course, but um, we, have, we have the band on a beach. We have the band uh, hanging over the city, as you mentioned. We have some... Uh, power lines. I mean, yeah. Um, okay. I'm, I'm with you. You know, all the bands and you were talking earlier about, you know, the very rich history of heavy metal in San Francisco. And I mean, you, you know, you could talk about the thrash scene. Um, I mean, you know, Vaughn is about as early black American black metal as you can get. Mm. But there was this very, very vibrant little constellation of bands around 
um, not around Hammers of Misfortune necessarily, but involving members of Hammers, Hammers of Misfortune. And it's sort of like Norway, where everyone's in everyone else's band. But, you know, like you get, you know, Amber Asylum, talked about the champs, um, Weakling, hugely important American black metal band. If you've never heard Dead as Dreams, I suggest that you get a copy post-haste. It's an amazing album, an album about which no one cared upon its release. I was just going to um, say that one like, came to my attention, and I remember being like, you know, no, nobody knows this. This is just, you know, whatever, kind of a one-and-done cult thing. Its legend has grown over the years. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's one of the most important American black metal albums now. But I mean, for years, I mean, it, it, you know, it was, it seemed destined um, for oblivion. I I only found out about it because of other people who were more in the know than I was. Um, And I finally, uh, I was able to rustle a copy sometime in the mid 2000s. um, I forget when, but I, I got it for pretty cheap still because they weren't, their star hadn't risen quite yet. Yeah. Um, but anyway, it's it's a a great, if rather exhausting, listen. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you want to eat your Wheaties before uh, digging into that. But to a, a, another very very important band um, that should be mentioned here is Ludacra. Yeah. Um, and John Cobbett was a core member of Ludacra. Um, played on all four um, full lengths. Also, that band features drumming of the the great Aesop Decker, another. Um, uh, San Francisco Luminary and and Ross Sewage from uh, Exhumed. Exhumed and yeah Exhumed and Impaled. Yep. Um, apparently, um, he played uh, live with Wolves in the Throne Room at, at some point. Rosten with them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. Just okay. just live. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so yeah, I mean, um, pretty fleshed out lineup you got there, um, and um, their their album. Um, uh, the tenet is it's, it's kind of become you know a cult um, minor classic in the uh, the you know sort of American post black metal genre and and Fex Urbis is also a really really good record but you know we're talking about um, sort of urban decay and identification um, with geography but you know Ludacra wrote at it fairly great lengths about sort of the the grim realities of of life in um maybe the more impoverished parts of san francisco mm-hmm. so this couldn't help but infect hammers and and cobbett and 17th street because we're, we're certainly we're getting we're getting this imagery and, and this idea for the very first time in hammers i think before this uh, we were dealing with a band that um, it wasn't it wasn't fantasy by any means, but there was right. like a lot of symbolism, a lot of sort of pagan mm-hmm. imagery to reflect everyday sort of workaday stuff. This is the first time that they I think they are, are really this reflective, really this introspective and really right. this putting up a mirror to themselves and to their their immediate surroundings. I think the re- I think before this, we're getting more escape, perhaps. Yep. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, okay. this is uh yeah, this is a very um, grounded album. Yeah, but you know, but at the same time though, I mean, yeah. there are songs in the, in the back half that remind me more of David Bowie or even like the more experiment, not experimental, but like just adventurous Elton John stuff, like yeah. Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, like you know, Summer yeah. Tears and Romance Valley. They're they're still reaching into the art rock world or the prog world. Or- and 
and the and the pop rock world because I hear plenty of Magnum, um, mm, some like mm. heavier sticks. Okay. Yes. Um, yes. Yes. Lo- and, and we love that. I mean, we love early Magnum. I love a ton of sticks. I hear a ton of that on 17th Street. So yeah, while they're while they're being reflective and being kind of a little grittier, they're still kind of exploring this other sort of more ethereal layer uh, of the band. And this is what makes this band fascinating. And I think this is what, this is the convergence uh, of their, within their sort of evolution or adaptation that makes this album so great. And for us, a masterpiece, this just, I think everything just comes together here and it, it, it almost shouldn't because they've had more lineup changes. They got a new guy on vocals called Joe Hutton yet they make this beautiful stuff. And I, and I highly recommend this album. If you're going to start with hammers, go for this one, probably even before August engine. I think this is, this is, um, this album has everything. Uh, we're going to catch a song called the grain near the middle. One of my favorite passages in any hammer song, this gorgeous bit of melody and that, uh, impactful chorus. You were definitely on board when I picked this one for this. For this I, I mean, I was going to force you into, choosing (laughs) yeah well here we go here we go Uh, under under no duress the grain music exists outside of time i think that it resists any attempt to to date it to capture it and freeze it i think it belongs to the ether and i don't say i don't use this word very often though i've probably used it a couple of times tonight and by the way i'm also a hypocrite so don't listen to anything i say um but this song and the section we just played is classic. Um, yes. it, it it belongs to 
a rank of songwriting and craftsmanship that refuses to be labeled, that refuses to be trapped and, and forced into any genre. This, this to me is, is like rock and metal songwriting at its, its most rarefied. There's not much I can add to that. I, I completely agree with you. And, and yes, maybe there's somebody who hasn't heard this album or just doesn't connect with it. Maybe they think it's all hyperbole, but you're, you're absolutely right. You don't say it that often. You're not given to that kind of statement very often. I know you well, but this album means a lot to both of us. And, and what you're saying took me back to 2011 when this came out. And I was going through what is still and hopefully always will be the worst period of my life. And I was actually staying with Josh Greer for a couple of weeks because things at home were um, strained to put it mildly. And this, I got this album at that time. I also got the Arch Matheos album, Sympathetic Resonance. And those two albums pulled me out of what could have been a, a disastrous time in my life. And I remember getting 17th Street and Josh was a fan. So we were sitting listening to it and 317 starts. And it's a great intro. It's like a really excellent, like just the way you want to start an album, right? And then you get to the title track. And then you get to The Grain, which we just listened to. And then you get to Staring uh, the 31st Floor, which is um, also a really great song. And I wish we could play part of it, but we, you know, we don't want to make a six-hour episode here. And then you get The Day of the City Died. And I remember by that point, I was like, oh, my Lord. I mean, this is, this is a band reaching heights that I thought maybe they had left behind with August Engine. Not to say that the next two weren't really good. They are. But this was, this was another thing. This was um, definitely an inspiring thing. And at that point for me, it was, it was very much a, like, you know, a reason to go on, you know what I mean? Like it was, it was, uh, it was that good. And I, and I treasure this out, this album to this day. So I, I think on that note, there's nothing more to say other than to play The Day the City Died. Probably my favorite Hammers track, period. Um, I love it for a lot of reasons, but it also mentions my beautiful town of Savannah, Georgia. Ah, right on. You, you live in a wonderful place, and I, I, I love that it's, uh, it's name-checked here, on, uh, uh, along with a few other cities. Um, yep, good uh, cities. The Day the City Died.
right there. And for most of that track, well, all of that track and most of the album, uh, you know, I'm thinking like Thin Lizzy. There's a part in there that reminds me of Fire of Unknown Origin era Bloister Cult, which we both hold on a very high pedestal. Yeah, it's classic, but it's... It's not an homage. It's part of this undiluted stream of classic rock and metal songwriting. Writing is the key word because I don't think, I think to ape that stuff is quite easy. I think we saw that with the sort of like um, fuzz rock revival uh, that happened about 15 years ago in bands like Graveyard and whatnot. I mean, to me, that's a lot of artifice and not, not a whole lot of great songwriting. Um, but right. I think that Cobbett holds it. I think the Hammers has it. And I think that we hear it all over 17th Street. What a great song. There's nothing more I can say. <laughs> <laughs> I, it, I, I actually may go listen to this record when we get done recording. <laughs> Do it. Do it. <laughs> yeah. Not enough hammers. No, especially this one. And, and um, this album ended up on Metal Blade. I remember when I got the finished copy, it had the uh, bloody Axe logo. And, and, and I'm telling you, I hadn't seen that on a new album in a while. I think that might, might have been one of the first ones that Metal Blade did like that. And it made so much sense. I thought that just makes so much sense because yep. this is a true Metal Blade band. I don't even know if I can define what that means, but all respect to the labels, Tumult and Cruz del Sur and Profound Lore, I just feel like Metal Blade, is something about the classic Metal Blade is oh, what yeah. Hammers evokes. And you know, and I just thought about this. Um, what about Gestures of Destiny? Sure, yeah. Are, were they San Francisco? I don't know, but um, man, Digging That Grave? Yes, uh, well... Fun at the funeral. That album is great. Yeah, um, yeah. There, Here, there yeah. Go. I tell you what. I'm going to. I'm uh, going to consult the oracle while we talk. <laughs> see. Well, the other, while you do that, the other thing I was going to say was that Metal Blade retroactively picked up the first four albums for reissue. So, uh, if you buy a physical copy, which you fucking well should, are all on <laughs> Metal Blade now, and and I think that's that's a wonderful thing. They just seem to fit so squarely within the Metal Blade ethos, uh, which isn't one thing, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, they did they did radically progressive things like Fate's Warning. Uh, and, and I feel like Hammers is, encapsulates that traditional and progressive thing that Metal Blade, you know, always embraced. So there you go. Los Angeles, by the way. For Jesters of Destiny? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, California, whatever. Yeah, California, whatever. It's um, a day trip. <laughs> it is a day trip. So after 17th Street and before the sixth album and to date their most recently released Dead Revolution album, vocalist Joe Hutton, who we heard on The Grain and Day City Died, had a horrendous motorcycle accident that nearly took his life. Thankfully, he returned to Hammers. And before we sampled Dead Revolution, Cobbett told me a week ago that there's really no new material on the horizon for Hammers. So it's, it's probably going to be a while. He is writing music that he thought was better suited to other projects. He told me a little more. I, I don't know if what he told me was privileged info or not, but I can tell you that the guys he's pairing up with could be an amazing combination. Never count Cobbett out. Uh, he's living the good life in Montana. Uh, he still has a hunger for music. I wonder if that makes Hammers now a Montana metal band. <laughs> should, they come, uh, should they come back? You know who's from Montana? Jason Walton. Uh, <laughs> and I think Jason knew... <laughs> Jason Newstead until very recently had a ranch out there. Okay. Montana's a metal player. Um and and uh, Jeff Ahmet uh, from uh, he's a Montana boy. Okay. All right. All right. I, I like where you're going. Bozeman. <laughs> yeah. 
Amazing. So <laughs> Dead Revolution comes out in 2016. I mean, it, it, it has the very difficult task of following up 17th Street. I will say I never really connected deeply with this album. There are a few things I like. And the two that I like the most we're going to play tonight. I love the band logo. They came up with their best logo on this album. And the cover artwork is phenomenal. It's beautiful. Um, yeah, it, it's incredible. A little embarrassed to say that I think a little over a year passed before I even knew this record existed. It came out it really totally, under, yeah. under the radar. It totally slipped by me. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't know, know how. I don't know why either, but I, but I'm even, I mean, I bought it when it came out, but it, my perception was that it did slip under the radar. The Oracle has a few good reviews for it. So mm. that's great. The Oracle being metal archives, if you <laughs> missed that. <laughs> and I'm still discovering it. I'm still, I'm still checking it out. And I hate what happened to Joe Hutton, but I also don't think that whatever the case that he's quite as interesting on this album as he is on 17th street. I think he's incredible on 17th street. He, he really is. His yeah. emotional delivery is incredible. I don't pick up as much of that on dead revolution, but again, as, as both you and I know, sometimes we're not ready for albums. Sometimes they just don't flower uh, as quickly for us as, as others. With that said, let's take a listen to the precipice and let's discuss that together as we get back. Cause you and I have not shared this album much in the last four years. So here we go. The fog is rolling in a gentle drift of gray. And to the left, the sunset golden crowns the day. The asphalt cooling down beneath the rusty wires. The trees are swaying to the sound of swimming tires. I mean, it's awesome. <laughs> right, right. I know. But yeah, I, I, I'm. I'll, I'll admit to like 
it, it's not as good a record as 17th Street. Uh, no. A little is. Um, and I'm still kind of warming up to it myself. But nonetheless, there are certain things about Hammers of Misfortune that are just irrepressible. And, you know, the organ work, like we mm-hmm. said, the, you know, the, the approach to harmony um, is pretty much proprietary at this point. Even though, you know, you hear the echoes of all those other classic bands we talked about, like Thin Lizzy, Wishbone Ash, BOC. But nonetheless, like, it, it belongs to Hammers. And even when they're not, you know, at, when they're not, you know, traipsing around Mount Olympus, um, <laughs> they're, 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 they're still a, a tremendous band. Right, right. Just taking a walk along the Golden Shore is where, where <laughs> yeah. the, the rivers flow like wine. And that's, Convor- all, that's really Cavorting with the muses. <laughs> yeah, yes. fuck it. Yeah, just an average day. No, well, I, yeah, what, what are you doing this afternoon? Hey, you know. That's the thing. That's, that's how special they are. And there's something intrinsic about, uh, about them that the least great album will be excellent. In fact, I like Dead Revolution more than The Bastard. I think The Bastard is the one I don't connect to as well whereas everything else i kind of recognize as this this great spirit of hammers and misfortune yeah. uh, that might be anathema to a lot of hammers fans and that's fine uh, you know uh, maybe i'll never love the bastard maybe maybe one day i will for I now think maybe one day you will yeah for now you know here's uh here here comes the sky this is a, a favorite of mine off of dead revolution and uh we'll, we'll be back to wrap it up after this
You know, uh, Hunter, we haven't talked about the flute in a while, but we certainly could <laughs> probably talk about the trumpet right there. I, I think now's a good time as any to talk about the trumpet. <laughs> <laughs> a long time listeners will know that we had a thing with the flute. It just kind of kept coming up. I mean, you know, it's just not really sure how, because you and I neither particularly enthusiastic about that instrument. Oh, I'm, I'm way more enthusiastic about it than you are. I mean, I, I think I'm a, is it fair to say I'm a bigger Jethro Tull fan than you are? Oh, yeah. Uh, Genesis used it early on. Yeah. Um, I can go on and on. I, I like the flute fine. Uh, c- cathedral. Yeah, no. I mean, I, I like it fine. I think you have more of a prejudice against it, and that's fine. Um, we've also said we don't like the harmonica, but every now and then I'll hear the harmonica and go, well, I kind of like that. Like, I mean, you know, Voivod the Outcast. I, I believe there's a harmonica. Mm, yeah. Uh, wizard, the Wizard by a little, oh, band, the wizard. A little okay. band out of Birmingham called Black Sabbath. Never really quite got their due. And but, Cypress know. Hill, uh, uh, DJ Mug sampled the Wizard. Did you just um, say Cypress Hill? Yeah. I don't care about that. Well, I do. I, you look, man. You like <laughs> flutes. I like early nineties hip hop. <laughs> hey, man. We, we cool. both got we both got our things. Right on, yeah. brother. Right on. <laughs> well, we, we we can we can uh, we can certainly agree on the trumpet. On here comes the sky. That's a little yep. fan, fantastic little thing. So. There you go. We highly recommend you visit their Bandcamp page. As we said before, please go there. The band gets all the money. Um, I, I want uh, a few of you at least to buy a few of these albums. I, I know you will because we, we get a lot of response from people that go out and buy albums after they've listened to a, an episode. And that's just the greatest thing of all for both of us. And um, if you're turned on, please, please do that. We'll, we'll post a link on our notes. I just feel like if, you, if you've heard the fantastic passage from August Engine Part 2 or Trot Out the Dead or The Day the City Dies, you know, if, if you've heard those and you, you're not running out to buy it, you either already have it or you'll just never like it. So uh, <laughs> no judgment. Just don't dare stream it, because, especially on Spotify, because the band could use more than a few pennies a year for their art and for their efforts. We thank them. Thank you, Hunter, for a wonderful trip down the lane of misfortune. Thank you. And uh, next time, what do you say uh, we go and lie down with the lamb on Broadway? Mm. Yeah, join us for a special eight-hour episode of Radical <laughs> Research. <laughs> we're going to try to keep it down to about two hours. But, uh, yeah, we're going we're gonna to visit one of the greatest, greatest, most eccentric and wonderful, fantastic prog albums of all ah, time. Just yeah, one of the best albums of all time, I yeah, think. Yeah, and we're going to have a little fun with it. We're going to visit some uh, some previous Genesis, some later Genesis, maybe some Hackett solo stuff. We, we will see, but it's all going to be centered around the lamb. Join us in a two or three weeks for episode 56.